Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It was going to happen. We figured it out. I'm Pastor Mike. I'm so glad to see y'all. I have a confession to start off with. Uh, I have a filthy habit, and that is sometimes when I am bored, I just aimlessly scroll through headlines, the news from around the world. And y'all, it's the most unhealthy thing in the world. I'm not sure if you know this, but the world's crazy. Like, it's nuts, right? Often it's stupid crazy, like, I love this headline. I love this headline. <laughs> Minnesota deputies reel in woman stranded on waterborne unicorn. One, that's not news. Two, I hope they're okay. And three, that might be my daughter, Audie. This is exactly the kind of float she would choose. My favorite from a few years ago, oops, ignore that email invitation to a cookie monster cat party, U.S. Embassy says. More often than stupid, though, it's Florida man crazy. Anyone else ever feel like you have to apologize to people not from Florida when you meet them? Yeah, like when Pastor Scott came to visit, it's like, yo, okay, all that stuff is true. Like, none of it's an exaggeration. It doesn't apply to me, and I'm, I'm sorry, I guess, right? <laughs> I'm always apologizing for Florida. Two of my favorites from 2021 thus far. This headline read, fake teen doctor known as Dr. Love arrested again on fraud charges in Florida. The tagline was he was previously arrested at age 18 while legally operating a full medical practice complete with office, lab coat, and stethoscope. Or in more classical Florida news, drunk man steals floating tiki hut in Key West, <laughs> which I can only assume is one of Pastor Lori's in-laws. Um, <laughs> I love you, Pastor Lori. <laughs> But joking aside, most often as I scroll through these headlines, what I see are headlines that depict a world off the rails. Does anyone else feel that way? From the last five years, it's been headlines about violence, civil and otherwise, police shootings, protests, counter-protests, global and political upheaval. We witnessed the largest mass migration event since World War II as people fled war and persecution in Syria throughout the majority world. Economic and ecological collapse, some of my favorites. And that's before I even get to COVID. I mean, just think about it. That's a lot, right? That's a lot to just digest as I'm flipping through my phone, not doing my job. And we all respond to news in different ways. One of my favorite theologians, Tim Mackey, summarized three general responses that Christians seem to have when it comes to the insanity of our world. One, apathy. There's actually a song from Bo Burnham's new special, Inside, which I promise is going to appear in a future sermon later. But it's called That Funny Feeling. And it's essentially just about the barrage of contradictory and confusing messages and headlines that he gets and the apathy and the malaise he feels. Ultimately, what this apathy response captures for me is that apathy appears in two ways. First is ignorance. The news is too much, so we bury our head in the sand and we just act like it's not happening. Or the same response, but projected differently, we let it all in, right? We just consume it all with no filter and we despair. Does anyone feel despairing over the last few years? The second response is obsession. We get swept up in the headlines of the day, 
each one being the worst thing to ever happen on earth since the one yesterday. Does anyone ever do that? Yeah, that's right. We uh, scroll through Twitter, and then we spam articles to friends who did not ask for them. Please stop doing that if that's happening. And we never actually do anything about these things that are upsetting us. We just get more and more anxious about it. Or three, my personal favorite, wild speculation. This one is kind of specific for us as Christians. We speculate ceaselessly about the end times, the end of the world. What happens in this response is that Christians misread the Bible as this coded document that they're meant to crack. They take apocalyptic and Jewish prophetic texts out of context and then just slap them onto the events of their world that scare them. And then they become sure that they must be signs of the end times with ideas that once again are often misreadings of scriptures about what that even means. They obsess and speculate over when it's going to happen. Or worse, they try to help it along, ignoring that this has happened for all of Christian history and the end hasn't come yet, but also ignoring that Jesus taught us not to do that. He told us explicitly, as we're going to learn today, not to fall into this fearful speculation that much of what we're seeing has been part of human history for as long as there has been human history. We've just been privileged enough to only have just now heard about it or experienced it. And what I would say is this. One, pragmatically, these responses aren't helpful. They rarely motivate us to tangibly act for good. And two, they don't reflect what Jesus taught us to do in response to a girl, a world gone mad. They don't reflect how Jesus called us to respond to the turmoil swirling around our world. A problem that's apparently as old as the Jesus movement itself because it's what today's scripture speaks to. As we head into the second to last week of our summer series, holy cow, does anyone else feel like that blew by? Second last week of our summer series, Faith That Works, where we've been going through the book of James. You see, today's section builds upon the one we covered last week, where James condemned oppression and harshly critiqued those that he accused of oppressing the poor. And now, what we're going to see is that James turns to the oppressed, to his central audience, the poor Jewish Christians in these church communities he's writing to that are living under Roman oppression. And he's going to address a central question. How does a faithful follower of Jesus respond to a world that feels off the rails? Because James thinks that Jesus cared deeply about how we answer that question. To set it up, uh, recall from last week, James closed his last section reminding us that God, who is in control of history and who is just, cares for the oppressed, he hears their cries, and that he will one day reverse how this world works, bring justice and end oppression once and for all. You guys got that in mind? Yes? Thank you. I get lonely up here. Come on. With that in mind, James continues in chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged, for the judge is standing at the door. 
So James begins, brothers and sisters, or beloved, in light of God, hearing your cries and oppression, be patient as you wait for his arrival. Now let's unpack that. First, patience. This is a common theme in James so far. We've heard it over and over and over again. It's tied to perseverance, if you remember from week two. The idea of being faithful to Jesus and his teachings as we suffer, that how response to suffering. Here, James describes it with analogy. Farmers plant seeds but wait patiently for rain to grow their harvest. Similarly, we should act justly but wait patiently for God to bring about his ultimate justice. And what I want to plant in your head, ah, farmer, analogy, don't worry about it. If James must instruct people to patiently wait for God to bring his justice, we can infer, are people doing that, yes or no? No. We can infer that people aren't waiting upon God to bring his justice. Hold on to that thought. Second point, this patient perseverance under oppression is tied to something specific. The Lord's arrival, which he says is drawing near. Now, some of you who grew up in various churches are going to immediately jump to that speculation response, right? James is talking about the end of the world. It's almost here. Well, first, if that's what James is referring to, I have bad news. He was wrong. The world did not end in the first century. Spoiler alert, if you haven't figured that out yet. No, see, I believe that James is referring to something grounded in his historical context. You see, this phrase in Greek, drawing near, refers to an imminent, major event that's close enough to be felt and acted upon, but not here yet. For Floridians, think about a hurricane. We can feel its early winds, and we should probably put some boards up, but it's not here yet. Do you get what I'm talking about? That's what James is describing. They can feel a cataclysmic event coming and they should act accordingly. And what defines this looming event? God's justice, which they'll be vindicated through or proven to be on the right side of if they patiently persevere in staying faithful to Jesus and what he taught. Are you following me? It's geek out time. Because these themes... Patience, faithfulness, God's justice, drawing near, and vindication combined elsewhere in the New Testament concerning a specific historical event which I believe James is referring to. First, we got to get Jesus' story on our mind. Jesus comes to Israel, God's people, as their king or their Messiah, calling them to upside-down kingdom values, to respond to violence with peacemaking, oppression with generosity, hate with love. We've read that before at this church, right? Now, yes or no, did Israel's leaders accept him or this message? No, Israel's leaders did not accept his message or him as the Messiah because he wasn't the kind of king that they expected. You see, between the Old and the New Testaments, about 400 years in terms of the span between those two, Israel was conquered by a series of empires, leading to, in Jesus's day, the Roman Empire, which was currently occupying Jesus at the time of the Gospels. And under this long oppression, Israelites turned, as you would expect, to scriptures for hope, especially those that promised that God would one day, through his Messiah, defeat his enemies, bring his kingdom, vindicate his people with justice, and renew all 
well, centuries passed. And as you also might expect, that hope became expectation. It mingled with impatience, and it festered into a growing sentiment in Israel that God's plans and Israel's national aspirations were the same thing. And he was waiting on Israel to act, to take matters into their own hands, to bring his kingdom. A sentiment which birthed what historians call the zealot movement. Has anyone ever heard of the word zealot? Does anyone have positive associations with the word zealot? The zealots were Israelites who believed it was their divine duty to take up the sword against Rome, killing Roman soldiers, killing Jewish collaborators, especially tax collectors for the Roman Empire, dishing out God's justice, believing that their enemies were God's enemies and thus that their military action would bring his kingdom. Another question for you. Does any of that seem to mix well with a poor Messiah who made Roman tax collectors his disciples and taught people to love their enemies, abandon the sword, and reject retaliation? Not really. Good answer. No. Jesus wasn't the kind of king they wanted. He didn't fit their story of how God would act. Israel's leaders reject him unequivocally. They just throw it out the door. And in Matthew 24, we find this fascinating chapter. Jesus, having been rejected, knowing what's coming, his imminent death, this rejection of the path he's called them to, looks upon Jerusalem, the capital of Israel, the holy city. He looks upon its temple, the place where God dwelt, the center of the Jewish universe, and he predicts their destruction. Talk about a world gone mad. Imagine being a first century Israelite. This is the place where God dwells with his chosen people. And this rabbi, this Messiah, says it's going to be destroyed by pagans. I mean, y'all, this is unfathomable for Jesus' disciples, for his audience. And naturally, the disciples have questions, right? The first one's pretty obvious. When will that happen, they ask. <laughs> and second, and this is an interesting one, Will this mark the end of the age, the moment when God comes and makes all things right? You see, they assume that their crisis, this thing that they could never have imagined happening, and the end of God's story, the end of the world, go hand in hand. But here's the funny thing. Jesus doesn't. He answers them, as you might expect. First question, second question. First question, when will this happen? He says that the fall of Jerusalem will occur within a generation. Biblically, if you know your Exodus story, that's how many years? 40 years. And he describes it as justice or the inevitable consequence of this path that Israel's leaders are choosing. God called his people to peace, but they're choosing zealotry. They're killing Jesus, and they're responding to Roman oppression in Roman ways, revolt, war, violence, which can only in one way disaster because y'all Rome is better at being Rome than Israel is and Rome's not who Israel God's people were called to be and in 70 AD a generation later guess what happens Israel anoints a zealot king they go to war in God's name and Rome absolutely crushes them 
crucifying thousands, burning Jerusalem to the ground, tearing the temple down brick by brick. Jesus paints a picture of their world ending, not the world, their world ending. But he promises that despite how things seem, despite the world feeling like it's falling apart, God will vindicate him, that he will somehow, some way still be king on the other side, that through Jesus, God would defeat his enemy, evil itself, not Rome. He would defeat the disease, not the symptom, not through violence, but by disarming its greatest weapon of death and standing victorious over all it could do to him, resurrected, victorious on the other side. Through Jesus, God was beginning to set things right, but it wasn't through Israel's national aspirations and conquest. It was through a renewed people living in his kingdom under Jesus as king. And in light of that unexpected story, Jesus teaches them how to respond to a world gone mad. He warns, as this disaster draws near, you're gonna feel its winds. Leaders tempting you to forsake the path of peace. Chaos all around you. The drums of war hammering and hammering and hammering. But in that, he says, remember who God vindicated on Easter. Stay faithful to the king's teachings. As for the end of the age, the second question, Jesus does what we all love, which he barely answers the question at all. He says, only God knows that. That's not for you to know or to predict. Your job is to stay ready to be patient and build my kingdom as you await our faithful God doing what he's promised to do. See, I strongly believe that this teaching of Jesus and this looming event are what James has in mind as he talks about how we respond to the injustices of our world. James led the church in Jerusalem until he was executed in 69 AD, which is one year before what? The world goes mad. One year before Jerusalem's fall. In other words, he pastored a community trying to stay faithful to Jesus while living at the center of the zealot movement, which was incredibly tempting to an oppressed community, as you might imagine. James feels the winds of national fervor building, as Jesus predicted, and he's exhorting them to stay true to Jesus' teachings, to remember that they have a very different king than what the zealots preach, one with a vision of victory not defined by war and more and more bloodshed, but defined by peacemaking, a victory defined by God's justice, not our judgment, a victory defined by resurrection, not more death, a victory defined by healing, not continuing the cycles of retaliation and evil that have quite frankly broken God's world. We have a different king with a different story. And James says, remember that. He says, God hears your cries. And his story ends with vindication for those who stand firm in his ways, despite the raging of the nations. Don't be tempted by zealotry. Be patient. Strengthen your hearts. Leave it to God to judge. And don't allow oppression to turn you from loving your neighbor. Persevere together and you will be victorious at the end of God's story. I mean, it's a profound teaching on hope and faithfulness under the weight of injustice, is it not? 
He's going to close now with two examples that I find fascinating. We pick up in verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen that the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So first, we have two examples. First, the prophets, an obvious one. These were the Old Testament messengers of God sent to Israel when they rejected their calling to be a blessing to the world in favor of injustice and war. That story seems to play out a lot in the Bible, right? The prophets were persecuted for their message. They were even murdered by Israel's leaders who really didn't like being challenged. But if you read your Bible, they're always vindicated. They're always proven close to God. For James, they're the epitome of patient perseverance under oppression, living out the upside-down values of God's kingdom, holding on to their integrity, finding its blessing despite their suffering. As Jesus taught, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then James points to an example that I find less of what I expected. The Old Testament character of Job. And I think that seems odd. You see, I associate patience with not complaining. Anyone else? But Job suffers at no fault of his own. And y'all, he ain't quiet about it. Job is like 40 chapters long of him complaining, questioning, and getting quite upset over what's been done to him. And James provides him as the, the ideal of patience, perseverance under oppression. See, I think what is happening is that James is providing us with a very different image of patience when it comes to injustice. Theologian Scott McKnight summarized it like this. Job reveals a character who stuck it out, trusted in God, and did so fully aware of the fundamental injustice he experienced. Maybe then Job is the perfect example of the oppressed poor. Patience here may not be understood as quietude or passivity. Genuine patience involves realities like protesting to God. Yet without surrendering one's integrity, one's faith, or one's trust in God, or losing the path of following Jesus and what he taught. It's not shutting up and taking injustice. It's knowing that our God is compassionate, faithful, and just. It's letting our faith in him and those truths work on how we respond to the injustices of our world. See, for James, this isn't just about nuanced theology. He knew real people running the gauntlet of oppression. These are his neighbors, his friends, his family. For him, it's more than just thoughts. It's letting our faith work when it comes to knowing the temptation of evil, the temptation of violence, of retaliation, of taking judgment into our own hands. It's knowing where those paths lead. This is about him loving those that Jesus said were closest to his kingdom, the poor and the oppressed, loving them enough to exhort them to embrace a better way, the way of Christ that maintains their integrity, aligns them with the God of history, and grounds them in a redemptive hope. Not the hope of revenge, of getting the shoe on my foot this time, of continuing the cycles of brutality that have quite frankly broken our world, but this time we're on top. We get to run those cycles. It's a different kind of hope than that. 
It's the hope that in God's story, evil does not get the last word on his good work. Does anyone need to hear that in this season? It's the hope that these oppressive systems that define our world will topple because God controls and bends his history towards justice. Does anyone need to hear that in this season? It's the unshakable hope that this world can and will change because in God's story, all things will be redeemed. That hope in James's mind should change how we respond to a world seemingly off the rails. And whether you're prone to apathy, obsession, or speculation, y'all, that preaches. At least it does to me. Things are broken. And I have bad news. They've always been broken. And they're going to continue to be broken. And that shouldn't surprise us as Christians. We know the story. But in that, we are to be a people of steadfast hope. Because we believe at the core of our being that despite how bad it feels, despite how bad it looks, that God proclaimed victory over evil with an empty tomb. Amen? That Jesus is our king. Amen? History is in Jesus' hands. Evil will not get the last word in God's story. It just won't. We know that. He will make things right. And in the meantime, We're to hear King Jesus and respond to this world's brokenness like he told us to with patient perseverance. Not quiet passivity, but maintaining our integrity, trusting our God, and staying faithful to what Jesus taught us no matter how the empires rage. Building his kingdom by seeking justice, confronting evil, deconstructing oppression, while remembering that we are not God We are not the judge. We are not his instrument of justice and judgment. Christians don't get to decide how we respond to injustice and brokenness. Jesus told us how. And it may not feel good all the time, but it's the right way. With grace, mercy, compassion, self-sacrifice, non-violence, non-retaliation, peacemaking. And in all things, as James has taught over and over again in this series, with love of God and love of neighbor as ourselves. So, as we head into communion, the sacrament where we remember Christ's sacrifice, I just want you to reflect on maybe what James is saying to you. Where have we forgotten our story and who our king is? Where has fear or those enticing paths of violence and retaliation and resentment led us to respond to other people or this world's problems in ways that are different than what Christ told us to do? Where do we, with patient perseverance, need to act in love for the oppressed, building God's kingdoms in God's ways as we await the full realization of his kingdom in this world? Above all, y'all, where do you need to hope again? Where do you need to hope? On the night, he gave himself up for us. He took the bread, he gave thanks to you, and he broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks to you, he gave it to his disciples and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father God, you 
are just, you are good, you are faithful. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us, gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world, the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. Amen. The table is now open. Reflect in this last song. Come up. We have individual elements. Take them as you.